0: natural resources, conservation, and environmentalism.
1: A book like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, appearing as it does in 1962, served to sort of galvanize this idea that, you know, there, there really should be limits to growth.
0: A look at the history of the environmental movement in Canada. I'm Sean Carage, and you're listening to episode 33 of Nature's Past, the third part of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues. We are joined, as usual, by our two assistant producers, Andrew Watson hello, and Stacey Nation-Knapper. Hi. And on this episode of our series on uh, histories of Canadian environmental issues, we're looking at the history of the environmental movement in Canada. Uh, we're going to deal with this in two parts. In our first part on this episode, we're going to think about the relationship between Canadians and the natural environment over a a longer period of time from colonization right up to the present. And in our second episode, we're going to look specifically at the modern environmental movement in the post-war period, post-1945, up to the present. Uh, And we we come to this topic uh, because of um, the contemporary relationship between environmentalists and the federal government. Uh, very recently, our natural resources minister, Joe Oliver, um, made some statements about uh, environmentalists and uh, implicating that they were, or implying that they were threats to the economy, and in some instances, perhaps even terrorists and threats to national security. Which I think we could agree is a fairly low point in the relationship between environmentalists and the government. But it says a lot about the relationship to Canadians and the natural environment. I think.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the the fact that the these environmental groups are are being labeled as terrorists. Means they're actually becoming uh, quite quite effective, and the government, the the federal government, the conservatives have to try and find a way of responding to environmental movements that actually really have uh, figured out how to fr- frame the debate in a way that suits their interests, rather than having the debate always sort of uh, co opted by uh, by by big business or the government. And so I think that if if Joe Oliver feels the need have to term environmentalists as terrorists it means the environmental movement in Canada and North America generally is actually becoming a lot more effective than maybe it used to be
3: I think too it's indicative of the um, tendency as we'll talk about later um, and in the second part of the podcast to to pit um, environmental environmentalism against the economy or vice versa and so this mm-hmm. idea that the two don't coexist that environmentalism and the and the economy are very different Um things that can't work together aren't involved with each other in some way, when in fact they're all part of a much larger inter, intertwined web of human existence in Canada.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the core of the conflict is over um, how, to, how to use natural resources and what role natural resources will play in Canadian economic development, which of course for historians is a very old question um, <clears throat> that Canadian historians have looked at in terms of the context of European colonization, uh, and the immediate years after Confederation in the mid-19th century. I mean, Europeans and Euro-Canadians have had uh, a long and complicated uh, relationship with natural resources, so much so that uh, an early generation of Canadian historians argued that the core of the formation of the political economy of Canada was the exploitation of Staples resources. Harold Innis, Donald Creighton, and others uh, made this case. So, what does this say about um, how, at least in the present, we think about our relationship to natural resources? Are we no longer as confident that this is the core of what it means to be Canadian?
2: It's really interesting because Canada, Canada's nature has always sort of been one of abundance, right? And and throughout history, from from uh, early settlement through to the 19th and 20th century, we've sort of the, the 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 Canadian economy has seemed to move target one. Type of resource after another, oftentimes overlapping, certainly. But from the f- from the fur trade on through uh, uh, through timber and mining resources, and and now energy, we Canada's uh, culture uh, in terms of the way we think about nature has really has really shaped uh, been been very much shaped by natural resources and the way that uh, uh, Canadians think about making money off of or, or generating a- economic growth. And yet from we natural have resources.
0: episodes in the past that history can show us where Canadians were. Um, a bit ambivalent about that relationship with natural resources, concerned that perhaps what we once thought was an infinite, unlimited supply of some staple product is actually finite. And Stacey, you suggesting the fur trade. This happens much earlier Absolutely. in Canadian history.
3: I think even before the fur trade began in what is now Canada, um, the fisheries um, in the mouth of the Saint Lawrence, and even out off the Grand Banks, in the in the 16th century um, and early 17th century, there was cognizance of of overfishing or of being aware of supply, and um, uh, certainly not to the extent that there is today, I think, but it, there was an awareness, and and as as uh, Europeans moved into the continent in the 17th century and beyond the fur trade grew and, um, and the harvest of pelts was something that people were very concerned with, um, maximizing profits for a long time. But then as they started seeing, um, decline in fur-bearing animals, definitely they were aware of a need to, um, to pay attention to that resource and to either adjust their behavior or in some instances, um, uh, continue over hunting so that their rivals couldn't couldn't hunt in a certain area or um, or go to a different area that might uh, have better better mm-hmm. peltries and and allow that over hunted area to, to and replenish.
0: Certainly, foresters by the end of the 19th century were no longer as confident in the inexhaustible supply of. Timber in Canada, and so we have a beginning by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century of a conservation movement to try and uh, make best use of these finite resources for maximum economic benefit. Yeah, and
2: the realization that uh, that humans actually have to take a proactive approach and engage mm-hmm. with the with the resources. Uh, in some cases, le- like mining, it's about it's about doling it out over a, a longer period of time. But things like forestry, it's active, it's actually about uh, about tree planting. It's actually about creating uh, you know county forests and things like that, so that in the long term, rather than just the short term, the natural resources are available mm-hmm. for uh, for Canadians and their and their economy.
0: And though the relationship between Canadians and the natural environment has changed over uh, time since before Confederation right up to the present. Does this debate, even into the present, about how to use natural resources continue to exist within a colonial framework? Is this really about Absolutely. the European conquest of the natural resources of another people's land?
3: Absolutely, and I think uh, one of the readings that we've got on our on our great bibliography for this uh, podcast talks about mining in, um, in Indigenous peoples' territories and how um, the the exploitation of the resources, the dumping of the um, uh, the end products, and um, it, these are all extensions of, extensions of a colonial framework because um, the indigenous peoples on whose land this this mining is occurring aren't benefiting in the same ways that the mining companies, whose you know, um, whose investors and whatnot don't live anywhere near the sites, um, are benefiting differently.
2: I think some of these ideas uh, surrounding uh, wasted resources too still really uh, structure the way we think about uh, the Canadian economy that if we don't make the most of of timber resources, mining resources, tar sands resources, then we're basically wasting the resources that if we don't use it we'll lose it or Mm -hmm. that we're passing up a great opportunity here and that's still those ideas uh, have a colonial context. uh, 300 years ago and, and they still continue to have the same dynamic today, too.
0: So I think if we want to understand environmentalism as a movement in Canada in the present, we probably need to push our scope back a little bit further into the past and think broadly about how Canadians have related to the natural environment over the course of a long period of time. Lucky for us, Neil Forkey has recently published a book called Canadians and the Natural Environment to the 21st Century that looks exactly at this... Uh, Broader framework. So we'll talk with Neil about his book on this first part, and then we'll look uh, more closely at the post war environmental movement in Canada.
1: Neil Forkey, I teach in the Canadian Studies Department at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York.
0: Neil, thanks for joining us uh, today. We're talking about your very recently published book, uh, Canadians and the Natural Environment to the 21st Century. It's a full uh, history of uh, Canadians and the environment uh, from the very earliest times right up into the present. Um, And in the book, you characterize Canadians' experience with the natural world as being informed by two primary impulses. Uh, You write that uh, the first is the need to exploit natural resources, while the second is the desire to protect them. Can you explain for listeners a little bit further this, this argument that you make and why you see these two impulses as significant to the history of the relationship between Canadians and the natural environment?
1: Well, in, in some ways it had a lot to do with the way I wanted to make the book accessible to an undergraduate audience, but also to the, the larger reading public. Um, it also was, a, I think, a convenient way to... Uh, in essence categorize, if I can use that word, Mm -hmm. the literature, uh, secondary literature in environmental history. Um, As you know, it's part of a a larger series themes in Canadian history by the University of Toronto Press, and it does fit something of a formula. It's designed for students and readers who have an interest in the subject matter, but may not be entirely well-versed. So to get to your Point. It's a question of accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I do think there. It, it, it certainly is grounded in, in Canada's past. Canada started, uh, of course, as a, as a colonial entity. It is clearly linked to uh, burgeoning empires, both French and English. Um, certainly, in its early history, this is a point I stress, certainly in my in my own courses, so that. Try as we might we really can't get away from the staples model of Innis and lower and others mm-hmm. uh, Which does in fact does still have some some relevance and is still a good general way of trying to explain Canada at least at, at the outset, so I Did not want to get away from those sort of tested models of seeing Canada as a, a place of enormous natural resources but at the same time, that only really tells half the story, after all. It, 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 and I, I can speak to the other part about, uh, about preservation in, in a bit, but it also was in my mind, I think, from a long time ago. Uh, Donald Worcester wrote a wonderful book called Nature's Economy, I think first published in the late 70s and then later republished in the mid-80s, and it mm-hmm. has great success, it well-deserved success. Worcester, in essence was the first to sort of set up this model, and I think i I took that with me to my to my computer when I sat down to to really start to put all this together and what he what he does is look at uh, say uh, Sir Francis Bacon and the idea of scientific method and uh, trying to understand the natural world classifying categorizing uh, to get at its value for humankind mm-hmm. in other words that that may be one way of seeing, say the uh, in the book it's chapter two economic exploitation and the need to conserve resources um, the other side of that coin you might say is the Arcadian model by, uh, th- that he explains can be best attributed to Gilbert White and uh, mm-hmm. White's early book on the natural history of Selborne*, where he he really does try to see a holistic system. Uh, we can't exactly call it ecological at the time, but that <laughs> clearly was what he was looking for. In other words, how one thing connects to the other. And he he had made many observations uh, on the English countryside when doing so. But that idea is certainly able to be tested in many different locations. So I, I think... To answer your questions uh, straight away, it would be a question of accessibility to the reader, but also mm-hmm. to try to set up these two pillars. Um, and they're not monolithic, obviously. There are ways of seeing some blending of the, 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 the two ideas, Absolutely, I think, yeah. the book, I think the book brings that out. Uh, historians have, 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 have noted you can't see all of that in, in such strict terms. But I think that's really the way I I try to approach the book.
0: And as a framework, it works really well uh, for the kind of text that it is. Um, But it's also uh, remarkably um, uh, accurate for a lot of the history that you discuss in the book. Um, Thinking about uh, our relationship with the environment, obviously, within one particular framework is going to eliminate other ways of thinking about this history, Um, but Framing it as consumption and protection or conservation of natural resources actually turned out to be pretty useful in the broad sweep of Canadian history. I think in this book. Um, well, let's let's think about the early part of the book then. Um, what role did natural history play in European resettlement of what would become Canada, and how did early scientific observation and classification shape that emerging relationship between European newcomers and the natural environment of uh, the northern part of North America?
1: Good, good question. This was a, actually a, a, a chapter suggested to me by by the editor of the series, Colin Coates. He and and he's right. This is probably the best way to try to get at some of these early questions. Uh, again, uh, reiterating what I mentioned a moment ago, Innocent, and Lower, and, and the early Staples historians are useful, but they don't... Uh, they don't often give us a lot of the richness of the the thought behind. Well, what comes next? Is it mere exploitation of of the natural resources? Is it is it merely accessing the fishery of the Atlantic coast, the fur trade of the inland, the, the forests and such? Uh, certainly, that's part of it, but the second half of that question what what comes next what what uh, role does early science play in all this is something that uh, we in the editorial process worked out quite a lot and ultimately The best model for, you know, how to proceed from that point, the what if, rather the what next question, came from a book written by Richard Judd very recently, The Untilled Garden. And Judd more or less looks at the United States 1740 to about 1840, in other words, the exact period when um, I needed to say something about natural history. It was a matter of uh, in, in the case of New France, it was a matter of, say, uh, Jesuit missionaries. Right. Uh, it was a matter of early settlers. They may have been uh, the, the, the elites of society, notaries, uh, physicians, surgeons. In fact, that was the case with, with a lot of them, who were doing, in essence, um, well, they were, they were playing many roles in New France. They were—they um, had come here to to settle into a new world, but they were also... Quite linked to the scientific community back in France. The uh, Jardin du Roi, for example, uh, would um, not exactly employ these men, but they would encourage them to take samples, uh, of flora and fauna. Uh, some surgeons, in fact, would actually do dissections and try to get some sense of uh, how to best categorize the, the animals. Uh, mm-hmm. Muskrats, Porcupine, and so on that, that they were finding in the New World. They were building, in essence, a a larger body of knowledge about empire, in this case the French Empire. The English were doing much the same sort of thing, um, David Douglas, for example, um, and others that were uh, that were trying to work within the sort of Linnaean system that was uh, so prominent in Europe but during the same period. So. Natural history comes into this story as in, in a not very honest way of trying to really learn about this new place that would become Canada. Mm-hmm. But most certainly, it is linked to the idea of how best to use these resources once they're understood in building and sustaining this empire. Again, based in large part on natural resources.
2: And it's
0: interesting it to see, th- too, in the book, the way... Um, natural science, natural history observations persist as um, almost a method of colonization right into the mid-19th century with the Hind and Palliser expeditions.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and, and even uh, William Logan with the first uh, uh, entries into the Geologic Survey of Canada, uh, something Suzanne Zeller writes quite a lot about. But you're absolutely right. These same sorts of questions and even motivations are there for a good century at least. In, in Canada's early history. So I think, I, I think in this case, uh, my editor was correct. With this sort of book, uh, because it's compressing a lot of history and it, it, it's got to, in essence, cast the net very widely, this really was a good place to start the story because, as you have just pointed out, some of these questions have a, have a long life in, uh, in the early, the early uh, at least, uh, first
0: centuries of the, of the, of the nation. So, natural history frames uh, the way you look at the uh, early resettlement of Canada. Actually, that chapter covers, I think, the broadest sweep of history in the book. Um, But by the 19th century, uh, you note that uh, the relationship between uh, Euro-Canadians and the natural environment uh, changed, or something significant happened as... Canadians began to seek means to conserve natural resources uh, while others sought to preserve natural resources. Why was it uh, that this happened by the 19th century? What were some of the factors that contributed to these uh, shifting attitudes?
1: Mm-hmm. Well here too, what Canada what I think I'm what I hope I'm presenting in this in this book is that there's clearly a national story to be told. Mm-hmm. but most certainly Canada and Canadians, French and English both, we're connected to the bigger ideas of, uh, as, as we've just discussed, natural science, but also ideas of conservation. George Perkins Marsh's Man in Nature appears in 1864, but there's actually a good deal of talk in Canada, even a few years before that, about the quote-unquote proper way to go into, um, the, say, the forest frontier. The, the writer uh, he, he wore many hats. His name was John Langton. He was a, a, a Peterborough area lumberman, early settler. Um, he was member of legislative assembly for a while. But he he prevented. He, rather, he provided a very useful um, discourse in 1862 to uh, a scientific gathering in Quebec, in which he said, the, in essence, and I, I will distill the, the, the message here. In essence. The way in which settlers are moving on to the Ontario forest frontier is entirely wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about uh, the lands that, you know, in other words, the the beginnings of, say, the Canadian Shield, north of Peterborough and the cohorts and so on, things that he could see firsthand. Um, He knew better than anyone that these were lands best left to the lumbermen. They were the best method, in fact, for their use, or the best use of these lands was to lease them out. Get some sort of return on uh, on these resources, and and then use that money to do any number of things for the community, whether it be building roads or, or, or and so on.
3: Mm. But in other words, it would
1: go back into the coffers of the state. What Langton was seeing was a was a terrible misuse of the land by people who said they wanted to go on and be settlers, but actually were just sort of pretending settlers. They wanted the wood when they when they cut all the valuable wood on that particular plot of land that they leased, they kept moving on. Hmm. They were pretending settlers, in other words. So this is a similar message, in fact, that Marsh speaks about in the forests of the Northeast. In other words, this unregulated or um, not entirely understood motivation of those who wanted to exploit the land just for a, uh, a quick return. Hmm. You got a, a similar uh, and, and in fact, more, I think, measured response from someone named James Little in 1876 wrote a very um, um, long treatise on why this this sort of over-exploitation, unregulated uh, activity by lumbermen was going to be, as he put it, the the suicide of of the nation. Little himself, like Langton, was a lumberman, and he knew best what was going on in these forests, whether it be northern Quebec, northern Ontario. And what he was seeing was a denuding of really good forests, a a wasting of even more... um, good stands of, of uh, say maple in, in favor of say pine but um, the, the the resources were, were being wasted in a terrible way he even pointed out as as were other commentators at the time that the more and more that technology pushed back this lumber frontier mm-hmm. and brought in things like the railway the more dangerous the situation became uh, early early railways were, were Terrible uh, spark arresters; they were starting more fires than than any other uh, sort of natural means, and thus, in fact, burning and wasting a good uh, number of, uh, of acreage mm-hmm. in the far north. So, these are the sorts of voices you you hear, say, in the 19th century. And you know, if you want to complete the sweep, when the Commission of Conservation is established in 1909. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clifford Sifton, in in the first sort of inaugural address, this would have been in nineteen about nineteen ten, he, in, in no uncertain terms, states that the the future. Uh, the future prospects for uh, for prosperity for the for the nation rest on its ability to better manage its resources okay. and to eliminate waste, uh, be more efficient, bring in what what you have in the United States known as multiple purpose or multiple use projects, um, and Sifton clearly links these uh, this this new. Uh, found interest in, in resource management or conservation in very democratic terms. So there's a number of ideas that are floating through this roughly 50 or so year period, um, but they all point to better management, um, economic prosperity for the future, and uh, There's a great deal in common, as I hope I'm making the point here, with Mm -hmm. American policymakers or American commentators. So in that sense, too, Canada shares a lot with uh, with, uh, people involved and are interested in questions of the forest.
0: Right, and that's certainly a point that comes through in the book. I mean, progressive conservationism uh, is a transnational uh, phenomenon in North America, Um, perhaps something Canadians are unaware of, that uh, uh, although... Canada, in much of its territory, wasn't as densely settled as the United States. Anxieties about, um, waste and inefficient use of natural resources uh, transgress that border uh, between Canada and the United States in the 19th century. And I think fascinating, too, the case that you have of Lambton um, as early as the 1860s, and we're looking at maybe a generation uh, since the first um, English colonists in Upper Canada uh, start cutting back that backwoods. You start to see anxiety about how uh, Canadians are using those resources.
1: Right, but, right. In fact, if we, if we could, have, in fact, return to an earlier point that we may not have uh, fully cultivated. Mm-hmm. And Langton's a good, a good segue in a way to this. Langton would have been in that same group of settlers that came into the Peterborough area, the co-authors. Uh, that included uh, uh, Catherine Trail, Right. Who... who had an awful lot to say about about uh, the relationship between humans and nature she and and others like her were were arriving with something of a, a the, the, the literary tools to 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 uh, to record what was going on here and and mm-hmm. trail trail in her very early um, years would have been said the mid 1830s certainly saw all of this progress as necessary, but she's also lamenting, again, as early as the 1830s, that the scale is so vast here that it wouldn't it be nice to leave some of these Um, these wooded lands, if only for human enjoyment, never mind the fact that so many species were losing habitat, the the birds, the animals that she also found so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So there's people like Catherine Partrail in Nova Scotia, as Graham Wynne writes about, there's uh, uh, Titus Smith Jr., there's uh, Philip Henry Goss in the Eastern Townships, Uh, there's uh, people like Charles Fothergill and around the, the great The Great Lakes, uh, uh, particularly Lake Ontario, who are all voicing similar opinions as early as the 1830s, right up clearly through the 1890s, that Hmm. though this is an important necessity, frankly, uh, people's first responses was survival and putting in a crop and clearing back the forests and and, uh, caring for their families and community. But at the same time, there were voices that said, well, perhaps this is is too much too quickly, and and shouldn't we move more moderately through these big endeavors?
0: And I don't know if this is an answerable question, but um, you certainly point to instances of concern of conservation over fish and wildlife, but forests Mm -hmm. um, in uh, the history of the conservation movement in Canada and the United States seem to take a central role. Any sense of why that was?
1: I think there, too, uh, you you raise a very good point. We can speak a bit about the fisheries, but the forests, you're absolutely right. They do stand uh, really front and center. I think this has a lot to do with these, as you say, transnational links to the United States. It it is, in fact, not surprising, I think, that some of the first calls for forest conservation came from the forest industry itself. Mm -hmm. I've already mentioned two of them. Just now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these, particularly people like James Little, were very much in contact with their American counterparts who had uh, similar concerns. They, not surprisingly, both in the United States and in Canada, were very Pleased to see the advent of, uh, say, the Forestry School at the University of Toronto, uh, Bernard Furneau, come onto the scene, right around the same time, incidentally, that uh, the, the, uh, the Commission of Conservation is, is getting up and running, even though it was for only a short time. There really was a clearinghouse for conservation thought in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th. And I think forests were the first... Um, area or the first resource where people could see, noticeably see what the effect was of this uh, sort of unregulated or, or uh, not very well-regulated industry. The fisheries also, this, uh, I write about this in the book and I've done so elsewhere, mm-hmm. people like Samuel Wilmot, who was a uh, fisheries superintendent for the um, federal government, he was very interested in paisa fish culturing. Mm-hmm. um he did a, a really a lot of pioneering work which uh, was recognized worldwide at uh, at international exhibitions and he was more or less uh, sort of the, the the go-to person when it came to big questions of the time about technique and method mm-hmm. and he he worked mainly along the uh, the lower great lakes but his ideas were quite uh, quite uh, profound in, in the sense that uh, for Europeans, particularly in France, he was very highly regarded. In, in the case of the fisheries, it had a lot to do with uh, rising populations, particularly working class populations in, in large Great Lakes uh, cities or, or cities that could be reached easily by train. Mm-hmm. Um, whitefish was a particularly abundant And uh, relatively inexpensive uh, staple for working class diets in cities like Buffalo, Cleveland, and and many Toronto, Hamilton as well. So that, um, and I'm I'm going to sort of generalize it, but say within a twenty years, thirty year uh, year period, Mm -hmm. noticeable uh, declines were recorded by the fishing industry itself on either side of the border. Right. Wilmot was trying to to address this, not necessarily by say um, regulating the fishery so much, as by trying to create more fish, which you know may seem a little strange in hindsight, but at the time it, it seemed this was one of the good uh, uses of science, if, mm-hmm. if if only a practical science mm-hmm. uh, of time. So. Certainly, I think uh, you can take various sectors, whether it be the forest, the fishery, um, agriculture, and and, and sort of you know look at the way in which various sort of local responses triggered larger programs uh, at the federal level.
0: And then, interestingly, during this same period in which Canadians are exploring new ways to more rationally or efficiently exploit natural resources. A concurrent movement occurred that you discuss um, of shifting attitudes uh, toward the environment in North America uh, toward preservation um, based on uh, romanticism and ideas about uh, a pure, pristine nature. Uh, can you explain some of the factors behind the emergence of uh, this concurrent uh, shift in, in ideas about nature?
1: Well, in the book, I... Again, back to the the earliest questions we were uh, working with. You know, how how to best present? You know, what why things emerge when they do, mm-hmm. and it is in. I think I framed it as romanticism and preservation, in other words, the the other side of this economic exploitation and conservation coin. You certainly get an interest in um various intellects either in French Canada or English of trying to use symbols of the wilderness or symbols of life in Canada um, to make sense of make cultural sense of, of their of their place and, on this continent in the case of English Canada it's the movement Canada first mm-hmm. and they were not shy There's a group of intellectuals from whether they be poets or or writers, university instructors, university presidents in some cases, um, trying to, in other words, celebrate the great Canadian North, all the touchstones are here, The, the, the Northmen of the New World, this is a, a, a race, and they weren't shy about using such phrases, a race that is much more hardy than those southern North Americans in the United States because we're shaped by our surroundings and we're a very hardy race. We're from northern European stock and so on. Mm-hmm. French Canada, too. Uh, there's a, a, a great body of literature known as the Roman de la Terre the novel of the land in which the land is really something of an actor hmm. and and uh, making sense of the or providing a rootedness for uh, french canadians um, going back to something like maria chapdelaine a novel by louis emond uh, felix and Ant- uh, F- uh, felix antoine saval at uh, menoe metro um, there's a number of of of, of books of that genre that um, really set up French Canadians as the stewards of the land and great protectors of it. In um, Manon Maitre-Dalva, Master of the River, this is a great, uh, I, I use this book when I teach because it's mm-hmm. a great sort of uh, way of showing a, an actual um, uh, trend in an American and, and Anglo-Canadian investment and exploitation of, say, the Quebec forests in the nineteen teens, 1930s, mm-hmm. during, during that period. And it's set in the region of Charlevoix, and it's basically about uh, one man who's grown up in, in the forests of, of uh, the region. They've really been his home, and, and, many other, and, and in many other ways, they sort of feed his identity. And uh story is more complex than i'm saying but at at its mm-hmm. root mano is is the great protector of these forests against uh, outside investment outside encroachment and it, it, he holds these forests so near and dear that it actually the, the quest to save them drives him mad in the end and and that's it's a very tragic ending but uh, there too you know the this this idea of the the nature the uh, nature symbolism, sort of uh, informing Canadians' understanding of who they are and, and what their, I won't say their destiny, but what their purpose is in northern North America is, is made clear in some of these sort of turn of the 20th century texts.
0: And you uh, suggest too that the um, cultural attitude toward nature at the turn of the century uh, informed the movement to develop parks uh, at the provincial and the national uh, level. Uh, so these are, are, were pretty important changes in Canadians' relationship with the environment, and I think that brings us to the topic of this episode of the podcast. We're thinking about the environmental movement in Canada. What do you see as the roots of modern environmentalism in Canada today?
1: Well, again, I it, come back to those two touchstones that we've been discussing. In a lot of ways, it's a it's a menage of the of, of the two ideas, as well as some bigger historical factors. Post Second World War, Canada shares a lot, in in fact, with the United States in the sense that there's a as a baby boom, there's a return to good economic times. These good economic times. Um, meant that there was also a a, a much more renewed I would say emphasis on natural resources Mm -hmm. the forestry uh, industry throughout Canada after World War II really uh, gets back on track, it booms in a a big way not just in in, say pulp and paper which had been a mainstay before the war during the Great Depression but uh, in other ways as well but at the same time, and, and here too, without pushing the, the model too far, Samuel Hayes wrote a very good book a few years ago. I mean, no, a couple of decades ago, Beauty, Health, and Permanence, in which he sort mm-hmm. of sets out what were the values, what were the motives, uh, what, what drove the American environmental movement. And he, like I've just tried to set up, hangs a lot on the baby boom generation. In other words, they're There were by the early 1960s, certainly into the 1970s, a generation of people who were better educated uh, than their parents and grandparents. They may have had different ideas of what was uh, possible, what was their destiny for um, life in Canada among these uh, many natural resources. And, you know, informing so much of this was the science of ecology, which. Mm parallels, which can be seen as paralleling all of what I've just described. So even though Aldo Leopold's uh, The Land Ethic and, and so on, some of the major ideas that come out of the San County Almanac, they're not so well publicized until at least a full decade after his death. But certainly uh, uh, a book like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring appearing as it does in 1962 served to sort of galvanize this idea that, you know, there there really should be limits to growth. Because in, particularly in the case of Carson's book, she makes clear that uh, unbridled growth, particularly with pesticides, can come back to actually harm the very humans that it's supposed to assist or, mm-hmm. or aid in, mm-hmm. in creating more agriculture, better agriculture, and so on. But in the in in the on the Canadian scene, what I was what I had seen over the, over the years, and certainly when I sat down at, at uh, my computer to write this book, was that there were a lot of voices within Canada, particularly Fred Bodsworth, uh, the last of the Curlews this appears in 1954, predates these ideas that uh, Carson is, uh, you know, sort of working with in 1962. In essence, what he's, what Bodsworth is writing about in this, in this very accessible novel, it's, it's, it's a novel really for, for young, young adults, what we used to call the juvenile, um, you know, the juvenile age of, of, of readers. And it's a simple story about a, a lone male Eskimo curlew who, who makes this journey from the Arctic to Patagonia every year in search of a mate. And lo and behold, as time is going by, he cannot find a female with which to mate. And, you know, with, through the story, we learn a lot about the life cycle of the bird itself. Bodsworth certainly did what, um, what some of the early nature writers, uh, Ernest Thompson Seton, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, Charles G.E. G. Roberts were, were trying to get at, which was to say, looking at animals, uh, looking at an animal story to tell a much larger story about how humans are, are affected or involved in nature. And what Bodsworth, you know, to, to sort of summarize, what Bodsworth sees as the problem was that there was a loss of habitat. There were a lot of risks, both natural and, and human. Um, that these birds when they migrated had to face and over years these over the years these uh, these threats simply thin the flock that uh, to, to such an extent that this one example the eskimo curlew was becoming an endangered species and again this is 1954 mm-hmm. um most certainly uh, carson's book I, I think and it's certainly an American example but it's got such global implications mm-hmm. um, I think those sorts of examples help to feed the, the, the intellectual uh, milieu that we're describing And do you see
0: connections to the particular uh, kind of industrial exploitation that Canadians were witnessing by the 1950s and 1960s in terms of uh, chemical industries, nuclear power, as having a significant uh, role in the emerging environmental movement?
1: Oh, I think so. Uh, Jennifer Reed years ago did some fantastic work on pollution problems. This was uh, one of the really first... Essays to really look at the environmental movement in this case in Ontario, and I think to to take one of your examples you just mentioned, mm-hmm. the quality of water uh, in in large metropolitan cities around the, the around the, the Golden Horseshoe had had uh, citizen groups um, and and consumer groups really wondering what was going into their uh, drinking water or, wh- or what was finding its way into the, its drinking water. And uh, the area, say, from Toronto to Hamilton was... Uh, uh, not unlike a lot of American rivers, the Cuyahoga, for example, it was a mm-hmm. dumping ground for a lot of a lot of uh, untreated waste, a lot of unt- uh, a lot of chemicals, and ultimately it, it, this was finding its way into people's uh, drinking water. So much so that uh, I recall one example where you would uh, try to get a drink of water from your tap, and you would see a white foam cresting on top of that uh, of, of that. Mm-hmm. So it it really was. Uh, it, something that hit the average household. Everyone needs drinking water. The the thing that uh, that scientists at the University of Toronto, as well as their students, this is an interesting mix that Reed really plays up quite a bit. It's a, it's a mixture of uh, those in the applied sciences, but also uh, students. Again, back to the baby boom. Mm-hmm. By the, by the early 1970s that were asking these questions and trying to do something to, to stem the tide of what they saw as an unhealthy environment. And it worked. Uh, Pollution probe did a lot of grassroots work. They did they, they door-to-door canvassing, public education, these sorts of things. And ultimately, their efforts paid off in uh, the passage of the Canada Water Act. And you could also point to the passage of the... Uh, Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement between the United States and Canada. Two years after that, so you know I, I'm abbreviating the story, obviously, but mm-hmm. I think these are these are useful examples to us as we try to look at um, how people were conceiving of of uh, what was at one time promoted as uh, the benefits of technology, and then uh, in essence raising red flags of, of where the limits should be, and and uh, do those experts really fully comprehend uh, where these, these chemicals may one day wind up?
0: Now, in the broader framework of your book, uh, you're very clear that this history of uh, the relationship between people and nature in Canada uh, operates within a colonial context. Um, So what ways do uh, uh, indigenous peoples of Canada fit into the two major impulses of exploitation and protection of natural resources uh, in Canadian history that you explore in this book?
1: Mm. This is, this too was, uh, and I I thank uh, uh, Colin Coates, my editor, for this, for for really pushing me to, to consider this. And readers will notice that there's a aboriginal peoples are mentioned i think in just a, well they are mentioned in each each chapter mm-hmm. but there's a particularly uh, focused chapter chapter five where they take uh, they take really the full story they it's a tougher question to answer i think because in so many ways as colonization took hold as um, Particularly in the 1830s and 40s, as the early trappings of the uh, the reservation system start to to become a, a fact of life, the Indian Act of 1876. I would not be the first historian to point out that natives really are pushed into the background. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose to get at this squarely, though, we could bring ourselves back to Tina uh, Lu's very good book, States of Nature, in which she not only with rural folk, but particularly aboriginal people, tries to make sense of them in exactly this milieu where you've got the preservation impulse for parks and and for protecting nature, whatever that may be, and those, on the other hand, the more traditional, you might say, path for exploiting resources, making a living from resources. Mm-hmm. Um, Lou does a very good job of sort of making the, the, the argument for the local commons in which native peoples were m- more and more uh, um, disadvantaged if not disenfranchised with their, their access to, to uh, resources. But I think in a lot of ways the best example would be to try to look at Bill Parento's work on the Atlantic salmon fishery of, of, uh, of the eastern seaboard. And he's doing some really fantastic work in which he sets up the first half of the story as um, uh, sort of regulating to such a degree that the Mi'kmaq who uh, rely so much on the salmon fishery are unable to, by law, unable to catch fish by traditional methods, Mm -hmm. spearing in particular or jack-lighting. Uh, which was gave the f- fisher a very very good advantage. Um, you know, we're talking into the mid uh, mid 19th century. These laws around the books in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Quebec to uh, to really limit access. The same sorts of laws are then sort of tweaked as time goes by to affect local local uh, uh, Euro Canadian users. Mm-hmm. So. In some ways, the Aboriginal well, in many ways, aboriginals are are, are alongside um, you know sort of local users and being uh, pushed to the margins of of access. Uh, john Senlos and and others in particular have uh, talked about their exclusion from various parks, provincial and and national mm-hmm. uh, the Dynama too. Uh, so you know there are good very good studies that show us that even the most noble-sounding ideas, such as creating a park for the public's benefit, have winners and losers uh, in in these stories. And the natives tend to be on the losing end of history, I'm afraid to to say. But to try to update that and to try to make more sense of it, say, in the environmental movement, as as I think you're you're asking,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's interesting... um, you know, sort of to look at them in the bigger, almost international um, cases of Clackwood Sound, the Mackenzie Valley pipeline debate, the oil sands, even of, of of our own times. Mm-hmm. Um, natives. So let's take take Mackenzie, the Mackenzie Valley uh, pipeline, the Berger Commission of 1974 to 77. Uh, you know, this was a, a great uh, example of of uh, of trying to really Get the impressions, the opinions of the people who would be most affected by um, the. And I can say it, it really would be an intrusion of technology of the time mm-hmm. into uh, the Mackenzie Valley in the Northwest Territories to take natural resource. Uh, excuse me, to take natural gas to uh, to Canadian and American markets, and it wasn't merely just the pipeline itself; it was what the pipeline represented. Uh, its construction would have really brought in much more influence of southern Canada as well as some very uh, um, disruptive technology, so much so that it would have uh, interfered with the the migration patterns of, say, the caribou and and other animals that they'd relied upon. Mm -hmm. This was also at a time when, as Paul Sabin has pointed out, this was a period in the 60s to the early 70s when a lot of the... um, uh, the elders amongst the Dene and other peoples were worried that their own g- coming generation was losing the more, quote-unquote, traditional ways of, of uh, hunting and trapping. And so this imposition of technology investment from mm-hmm. the south uh, in order to get uh, what, in fact, was, by some estimates, a short amount uh, of, of uh um, of natural gas, maybe for about you know twenty to fifty years worth of natural gas, and uh, this seemed to be just such a high price for them to be paying. Mm-hmm. So Aboriginal peoples in this particular case were quite proactive. Obviously, they were given an opportunity to voice their opinion by Chief Justice Berger, but the point is, they made their their uh, their fears uh, known. They and they did a lot to emphasized the point that these resources were their resources, that they, this mm-hmm. land was their land. And uh, the, ultimately, Berger decided that uh, in, in the short run, this issue was closed. The pipeline was not allowed to go through until further, uh, further study could
0: be conducted. And that case study has enormous relevance for contemporary discussions about pipeline construction, for example, in British yeah. Columbia.
1: Right, right, right. In fact, it's unfolding as, as we speak. Um, it, we're, we, we, we are speaking on the cusp of the American election, and it remains to be seen what will happen with the Keystone pipeline, the Keystone XL. Mm-hmm. But in the, uh, in the meantime, um, as you point out, in British Columbia, local people, particularly aboriginals, are, are voicing their opinion in ways not unlike what had occurred uh, before the Berger Commission in the 1970s? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously it's not going to be exactly the same sorts of issues. But as as I read, as I hear what's going on, it's really more of a question of uh, what will happen if a catastrophic oil spill ruins um, the seascapes, the landscapes in which uh, these uh, uh, British Columbian Aboriginals live. And I think you're absolutely right. This is a, the, the case of the Mackenzie Valley gives us a lot of um, foundation to understand uh, the, the debates in front of us today.
0: And I think the final chapter in the book uh, on the place of Aboriginal Canadians and natural resources uh, in this history... Uh, performs two really important functions. One, uh, it shows the convergence uh, between non-Aboriginal Canadians and Aboriginal Canadians by the late 20th century around uh, concerns about economic or industrial growth uh, and their its, its effects on the environment in the case of uh, the Berger Commission in the north uh, or even the, uh, the Cree at James Bay with Hydroelectric Development it's in Quebec. Awesome. Um, but secondly, it highlights the, uh, significance of the reserve system of colonial practices in the 19th and 20th centuries to earlier generations of industrial exploitation in Canada, uh, underlining the point of the, um, the central role of the displacement of indigenous peoples, uh, for the exploitation of forestry resources, mining resources, hydroelectric development in periods in which Aboriginal people were disempowered from resisting, uh, that kind of exploitation. Uh, which maybe brings us to uh, my last question here, which is about the conclusion of your book, um, in which you write that unless Canadians renounce involvement in the capitalist economic system, it seems unlikely that the situation will improve. That is, the uh, our current relationship with the environment. So in the period between 1608, uh, let's say the beginning of uh, European resettlement of northern North America to the present, do you see industrial capitalism as playing an overriding role in structuring the relationship between Canadians and the natural environment? Is, is capitalism at the root of the two major impulses you describe uh, in this book?
1: That, that, that's a very fair question. I, I have to admit, I think was, I was playing a bit devil's advocate there. <laughs> I, I don't expect people to pour into the streets and, and demand that capitalism end tomorrow. But I, I do think you, you're onto something, and, and I... I, let's let's come back in a lot of ways to the two models we were using to try to get an answer for this. Uh, I think, in some important ways, particularly for a our, our contemporary society, we can see capitalism, industrial capitalism, as as structuring um, the relationship between ourselves and and nature, even from the romantic, what we might consider romantic or preservationist uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Some of the, um, Patricia Jason's done some, some very good work on this, again, back in the 90s, in a book called Wild Things. And she, she lays out a very good argument that, you know, what we think were fantastic ideas, and they were for creating provincial parks and, and green spaces, as we might call them, they do have roots in, say, the tourist economy, um, as rudimentary as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also brings us back to native peoples. One of the great, uh, thrill rides of, of the, the early, first half of the 19th century was shooting the, the rapids at Lachine. Uh, this is before they become really flattened out through a series of canals just, mm-hmm. just east of, uh, skipping west of Montreal. So, and, and native peoples were very much a part of that because it only had their presence. Usually, as pilots of these uh, uh, boats, were seen as, a, as something very exotic, and, and you know, travelers, whether they be Canadian, American, or or British, in, in most cases um uh, you know could could say that they, that they rode this uh this almost roller coaster like uh, um, bateau uh down the river and it was piloted by by, a, by an honest to goodness uh native but I think as well uh you know in other words you've got this strain where presumably nature's being protected um for its own um for its own good for, for, on its own terms. But at the same time, it is being showcased uh, mm-hmm. it, as, you know, as an, in a park setting or as a way of pre- presenting, uh, um, you know, the, the, the first uh, park film in the Niagara had a lot to do with playing up the war of 1812 and the heroics of, of various people there. So on the one hand, uh, as I, as I said, we we've got this um, sort of idea that we're going to create a park. Parks would be created for their own best uh, best uh, means of protecting nature or celebrating nature. But ultimately, these had uh, some sort of commercial side as well. Mm-hmm. And it it may now go without saying that the ex- more exploitive cases of the forestry, the fishery, uh, particularly uh, these are. Clearly grounded in, in industrial capitalism of the day, mm-hmm. and as many writers have pointed out, Jerry Cholchinski Chil- in particular, that the early transportation systems—the railways, the canals, and so on—they had a lot to do with sort of you know uh, the, the sort of advent of industrial capitalism,
0: at least in, in Eastern Canada. And I think this is a a good point to bring up toward the conclusion, especially for Canadian environmental historians, uh, thinking about their own particular case studies. Um, But there's a great opportunity, I think, for convergence between economic historians and labor historians to come together with environmental historians to think about uh, the way in which um, capitalism structures our relationship with nature or has structured our relationship with
1: nature. Well, I I, I thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to to say a bit about my book and and the field. It really is an exciting time to be doing environmental history, uh, I think, generally, not just in in Canada. As I said to a a recent uh, bring of of graduate students, uh, Canadian environmental history or environmental history is what the new social history was to the 1970s and 80s. It's really, uh, we, we really are on the the uh, right in the crest of a wave in a sense of and um, I think both as an historic topic as well as uh, um, you know pers- persistent uh, present issues like the oil sands it's a really wonderful time to be a scholar working with environmental themes so uh, so again I thanks uh, I thank you for your uh, your interest in the book
0: And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, environmental history in a lot of ways underlines the significance about thinking about historicizing contemporary uh, issues like oil sands, like natural resource exploitation, uh, and the environmental movement. Neil, I want to thank you for uh, spending the time with us here today and uh, telling us a little bit more about your book. If you have a really broad uh, sweep of Canadian history here uh, to think about uh, where Canadians are today uh, in terms of their relationship with the environment. Uh, Neil, thank, thank you
1: so much. Thank you very much, Sean.
0: Nature's Past is produced with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Network in Canadian History and Environment, the Robarts Centre for Canadian Studies, and Canada's History Magazine. This episode was made by Andrew Watson, Stacey Nation Canapper, Neil Forkey, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website, shankaraj.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.